Well, greetings, New Hope Church. It is so good to be with you today as we worship our great and mighty Lord, the great God and King, Jesus, our Savior and Redeemer. Uh, my name is Matthew, and I'm one of the pastors here at New Hope, and just want to say welcome to all of you. Let me give a special welcome to those of you who are part of our online community right now, tuning in from wherever you find yourself around the world, and we know some of you really are tuning in from around the world, and it's great to connect with you. Welcome here to New Hope Church in Minneapolis, and for those of you here on the campus, I am so grateful that I get to just be with you right here, and we get to see each other and be present together. All right, let me ask you to pray with me right now, and let's dive in. Father, thank you so much for the privilege it is that we have to worship you, to give you glory. You are worthy of praise, and thank you for your son Jesus, our Savior and Lord, our King. Oh, God of heaven, through the power of your Spirit, we long to live for him, to love him more deeply, and to love others because of him, and we pray you would help us wherever you find us, to lead well for him, to be people of influence on mission for his great glory. Lord, as we spend time in this love letter called the Bible, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would show us your heart, and you would help our hearts, Lord, to come into alignment with yours. So now do this work, even through me and with my friends here, in the name of our Lord Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen. All right, so let me just tell you, I have had a certain pattern in my life for a long time. It is a preference to have to be number one, to have to be first, to have to be number one. Any of you, any of you have a bent that way? You've just got to be number one in whatever you find yourself in, right? Well, let me, let me give you one glaring example in my own life. This is from some years back, but it still sticks out to me as something that, that uh, I, can't, I can't let go of. And it's, it's this. I'm pulling into a Walmart parking lot one day. This was in my college town. I'm pulling into the Walmart parking lot, and I see a spot up by the door, uh, and it's, well, it's a loading zone. And I decide I'm going to take that spot because I am number one. I am so important, I've got to have that spot. And besides, I'm going to be in Walmart for not a very long time, so who's going to really care, right? So I get out of my 1982 Dodge Reliant K station wagon, all right? As my friends in college called it, the preacher mobile, all right? I get out of my car, and I step away from it, and all of a sudden I hear, hey, you! And I knew it was to me. And I knew it was the guy in the semi that had just pulled up wanting his loading spot. And I ignored him because I'm number one. And he, he lays on his horn, so, you know, big sound, the horn echoing all over the parking lot, bouncing off of the Walmart. And uh, I just, for, for just a second, I thought, I should stop and go and move my car. And then I thought, no, I got there first. I'm number one. I get to be number one. And so I kept walking, and I walked right into the store pretending like nothing was going on out in the parking lot. Now, understand, by me doing that, he is now snarling the traffic in the parking lot because people can't move their cars because there's a gigantic semi in the way because I'm in the spot he's supposed to take so he can unload the goods that go inside to the Walmart. The community is impacted by my decision. 
This man is impacted by my decision. I am impacted by my decision. The reason I'm impacted is my self-righteousness is just skyrocketing. I'm in charge. It's all about me. I am number one. My agenda motivates my mission. Now, I have a question for you. You hear this, and I want to ask you, do any of you have a moment like that where you're just number one, and it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks? I, this, it, you don't need to raise your hand. Well, actually, it'd help if you raised your hand. It might make me feel a little better, right? I don't see any of you raised. Oh, okay, a couple of you. Can you think of a moment in time like this where you, you look back and you realize, what was I doing? I was making it all about me, right? And maybe, just maybe, there are moments like that just this morning or this past week. Right now, I see, I see some heads. I, okay, now we're, we're, we're meddling here, all right? Let me say this. I want you to hear this, please, friends. So important what I'm about to say. The God of heaven and earth, he is so crazy in love with you. He loves you so much. And what we want to do here for the next little bit is experience him healing us and helping us to revamp our priorities, to put ourselves in a position where we're not number one, but he's number one in our lives, okay? Where we're willing to, where we're willing, like really willing to step back and be number two, right? So we're going to ask our Lord to just help us with this. So Father, help us. Speak to us. Because I believe he's got a word for you and me about this. And it's not a word of condemnation and woe. It is a word of child, I love you, and I've got something better for you than that. All right? It's an invitation to be more like Jesus. It's an invitation to have a heart that, that is willing to be sacrificial and humble and available to giving God glory. All right. So this, this is what we're going to talk about here for these few minutes. And, and I think what God is going to do is with a certain question, he's going to press into your desire or my bent to have to be number one. He's going to press into that with a question. Now, here's some context. Context for the question. We're going way back in time. We're, we're going to go back to the ancient days when the people of Israel are wrapping up what has been 70 plus years as exiles in a foreign empire. The land that today we would call Iraq and Iran, kind of where those two great nations collide together. In that general region, long, long ago, God's people were in exile. And they were there for over 70 years. Now, if you wanted to know, well, why were they there? then I would encourage you to take your Bibles at some point and read through uh, books like, like Second Kings in the Old Testament or, or Second Chronicles in the Old Testament. Or the, this was a powerful one, the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament, and Ezekiel and Daniel. You read those books and you'll get a sense of the entire experience. All right, take time and do that. But now, for our purposes today... The people of God are on the other side of this exile, and the great uh, emperor of the realm in which they find themselves is giving them permission to return to their homeland. They're no longer exiles. They can now go home. 
They are free to return to their ancient land, the land of Israel, to Jerusalem, the great eternal city. They're able to return there. And so, throughout a period of years, wave after wave after wave of Hebrew people make their way back to Jerusalem. And it's quite remarkable, this great story. And they begin to rebuild their lives there. And if you want to see uh, that experience, then you also can look in the Old Testament at books like, like Ezra and Nehemiah. And they will tell you of, of God's people coming back and rebuilding their neighborhoods, rebuilding their communities, building the walls of the city. And in so many ways, just reconstituting themselves as God's people in their own land. Now, that's the context so far. But in the midst of all this, there's a prophet that God raises up, and his name is Haggai. How's that for a name? H-A-G-G-A-I. Some of you young couples need to name your next child Haggai. All right? And, and Haggai, he's, he, he's not mentioned a lot. His voice is limited relative to some of the other great prophets that we see in the Old Testament. In fact, there's a little book in the back of the Old Testament that bears his name, and it's the second smallest book in the Old Testament. Haggai, it's just two chapters. It's very simple. Uh, if you were to look in your phone there and you're scrolling down on your Bible app, you go down about two-thirds of the way. You'll come to Haggai. You just push on that, click on chapter 1. If you've got your, you know, like a, a hard copy Bible, it's approximately two-thirds of the way uh, into your Bible. Uh, just right of center, Haggai. Now, Haggai is writing, here's, hear this now, he's writing around the year 520 B.C., now, again, the people, they've been in exile. They're now coming back in the land. And Haggai is writing. Please hear me. He's writing for one main reason. God has Haggai give voice to one main concern. And it is this. Even though the people have come back into their land, and even though they're building their neighborhoods, and they're rebuilding the city walls and all the stuff, the great temple of God is sitting there dilapidated. They're not giving it any attention. Oh, when they first got there, they made some effort at it. But, you know, it was hard. The resources were slim. There was some opposition from some of the uh, local people. And so the Hebrews just gave up. And, and for decades now, it has been sitting unattended, dilapidated, falling apart. And so God says, hey, Haggai, I want you to say something to those people about this. I want you to talk to them about this. And so, uh, if you have your Bible, if you go to the place I referenced here a bit ago, uh, then, then you'll hear these words, Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the second year of Darius the king, that is the king of Persia, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, this would be the year 520 B.C., the word of the Lord came to the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, what that means, by the way, is simply this. Uh, there's a reference to a couple of the great leaders, a civil leader and a religious leader. And we see them here. All right, and so uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua, civil and religious leaders. And Haggai is, 
is a prophet that comes alongside. He's, he encourages them. He speaks truth to them. They listen to him. And as he's doing this, God says, Haggai, I have a, I have a message I want you to give to my people. And, and here's what we see, all right? So verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people, now these people, that's a reference to the people of God, to the Jewish people there. These people, it says, they say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, let's, let's have a hard stop right there. So Haggai is tasked by God to challenge the people of Israel. Uh, listen, my house, it's not being taken care of. It's not being rebuilt. It's not being fixed. And, and what Haggai communicates is that apparently the word on the street among the people of Israel, well, it's just not the time to do it. It's not the time. Let me ask you a question. Before we go any further, I just, I just have to ask, is there anything in your life that God is asking you to do and your response is, it isn't the time to do it, Lord? All right? Is there anything in your life that God is asking you to become and your response is, ah, it's just maybe later? Not right now. I, I'm too busy. I'm reminded of the parables, the stories in the Gospels where, where Jesus is laying out opportunity after opportunity, and some of the people in the crowds, you know, they're hearing him speak, they're hearing his stories, they're hearing his purposes, and they say, hey, we want to follow you, but first I need to go bury my father. Hey, I want to follow you, but first I got to go take care of this thing over here. And Jesus, Jesus is like, well, clearly your priorities are in those directions, okay? Well, this, this is what's happening here. The people of God they're not paying attention to the temple. It's remaining empty, unkempt. And when asked, they're like, oh, it's not the time. We got better things to worry about. That's kind of the attitude. All right, so friends, hear me now. This leads to a question. Remember, we're in a series now called Questions God Asks. And we're looking at questions throughout the Bible that God puts forward to his people. And here, here's one, and it's a significant question. It's a convicting question. It's a timely question. And here it is. Are you ready? We see it in verses 3 and 4. Haggai chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin. Wow. Is it a time for you to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, by the way, what is this house we're even talking about, this, this temple? Well, we have to understand, centuries earlier, there was a great king over Israel named David. And David had designs to build a magnificent temple for God and his glory, a center of worship for the entire nation of Jews. But God said, David, you can't do this because you are a warrior king and you've got too much blood on your hands. And uh, so, no, you're not allowed to do this, but your son Solomon can do it. And sure enough, David set everything up for Solomon. Solomon becomes king. David moves on from the scene. He passes away. Solomon builds the temple. And it is glorious. It is spectacular. Wow. People come from all over the world to see Solomon and to see the temple. I mean, it is extravagant, mighty, beautiful. 
And the people of God worshiped there for generations. But at some point in time, when the great empires of Assyria and Babylon and then Persia rise up, these great mega empires, uh, those empires sweep in and there's great decline. And eventually, under the heavy hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, Jerusalem is laid waste and the temple is destroyed. And now, we fast forward all these years and the people are heading back into the land and they're, what they're doing is they're building their homes. And they're building the walls of the city. And they're building their neighborhoods. They're building their schools. But they're not working on the temple. And it's sitting there lying desolate. And it hurts God. And so God says, Haggai, say something to them. Ask them, Are you, you're, you're building all your homes fancy and such, and my place is just lying there desolate. Now, i got to say something here, and I need you to hear me. What I'm about to say is extremely important, okay? And it is this. It is tempting for you and me as we hear this, and we try to think, how might this apply today? It is tempting for you and me to think, oh, well, uh, so uh, this is all about brick and mortar. I, I, maybe I shouldn't be concerned about my house, and I need to come and do something here to this property, to, to the New Hope Church campus. That's not what we're talking about here, friends. You hear me now? That's not what we're talking about. That would be a very easy and reductionistic application here, but that's not what we're talking about. Please don't hear this conversation as a brick-and-mortar conversation. It's much bigger, much more essential than that. The reality is, what God is doing is saying something to his people about the essence of who they are and how they prioritize life. Are they going to be first or are they going to take second? And will God be first or will they make him second? It's so much bigger than brick and mortar. It's about a worldview. It's about how we live out our existence as followers of the Most High God. There's a lot, hear me now, there's a lot at stake here. There is a lot at stake. Uh, let me share with you four things that are at stake. All right, number one, and you might write these down. God's glory is at stake. God's glory is at stake here. Now, uh, a, an acquaintance of mine, one of my professors from many years ago, was a wonderful Bible scholar, Tom Constable. He offers these words describing this. In the ancient Near East, now you'll see these on your screens here. In the ancient Near East, the glory of a nation's temple reflected the glory of the people's God. All right, so let me just pause. Keep that up there. Just pause for a second. All right, and so uh, scattered all over the uh, Middle East in those days were all these little temples, and they were designed to reflect the glory of the gods or the idols that the people worshipped, okay? Well, here, in the ancient Near East, the glory of a nation's temple reflected the glory of the people's God. So to finish the temple meant to glorify Yahweh, the one true God, the real God over all of creation and beyond. The fact that it had been left desolate and unattended to suggested that God's glory didn't matter. Do you see the problem here? 
It was, in effect, a, a, a declaration that we're not real concerned about God's glory. Now, we should be concerned about God's glory. Now, what is glory anyway? The word glory in the Hebrew language, it has the idea of heaviness or weight. I want you to think just the weightiness of God, the, the magnitude of God. And the temple, this is why King Solomon, he, he did such a, an extravagant job building the temple because God, Yahweh, the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth, is an extravagant, infinite being. And so the temple that Solomon built reflected this. And now that it's sitting empty and desolate and falling apart and no one's giving it attention, it's like saying his weight doesn't matter anymore. And the question for us is this, how do we convey the glory of God in our own lives? How do we treat it? Do we care more about our own weight, our own magnitude, our own agenda, our own glory and honor, ah, our own reputation, and we diminish His? That's what's really going on here. It's not about brick and mortar. It's about what do we do with God's reputation, with his weight, his honor, his glory. And by, in their case, them not giving any attention to the temple there in Jerusalem, it was, it was as if they were saying, you know, our glory, our glory is more important than his glory. My home is more important than his home. My agenda is more important than his agenda. My honor is more important than his honor. All right, do you see, do you see here? This, this is what's at stake, right? So a question for us is, how much, how committed am I to my agenda over against his? How committed am I to my honor over against his? My reputation over against his? All right, so there's that. God's glory is at stake. Here's something else. Our holiness is at stake. Our holiness. Now, you know, churches don't talk about holiness a lot anymore. Well, that seems old-fashioned. Uh, it might feel a little legalistic to some people, very ritualistic. Isn't holiness something that dusty old women and men do somewhere in like a convent in the mountains? I mean, is that, what is, what is holiness anyway? To be holy literally means to be set apart, to be distinct, to be unique. Uh, it's the word from which we get the word, at least in the ancient languages, the, we, we get the word saint, S-A-I-N-T, from the concept of holiness. Uh, the, the idea of being sanctified or a saint so if you're, a saint, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you are a saint. That means you are set apart. You are unique. You are distinct. A distinct from what? From the way the world thinks, from the way the world lives, from the way the world uh, uh, walks out its life as people that are broken and sinful and who are not yet redeemed. But see, as those who are redeemed, those who are with God, those who follow after the Lord, we are now unique and distinct. We are holy. All right? 
And, and so the question here is, if we're not giving attention, like for them, if they're not giving attention to the temple, it says something about their distinctness. Maybe they're not that distinct after all. Because if they were caring about God's glory and, and the embodiment of that in the concept of this temple right there, then it would say something about the unique spiritual quality of this people. But being that they don't seem to care about God's glory and his honor and his reputation, it then says something about them that maybe they're not that distinct after all. Maybe God hasn't done a unique thing for them. Maybe they really aren't holy, set apart, right? And so it's a testimony about how they view God, but then it also becomes a testimony about how they see themselves. Well, we're really not that unique or special, actually. And, and boy, when we think that way, when we recognize, well, maybe God doesn't care about us sufficient enough for me to care back, then that has real implications for how we live our lives. All right? Holiness matters. Uh, the apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, he writes this. Just listen to these words. You, you don't need to turn there, but... 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 and following, Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy because I am holy. Right? And because God is set apart, we should be set apart. We should be unique and distinct. And so when I'm choosing to be first, when I'm saying, you know what, I'm first. I get to be in charge. And everybody else, including maybe God, can be second. What I'm saying is I'm really not any different than the rest of the world. I'm not unique after all. I'm not distinct after all. There's nothing about me that is set apart. I'm just like everything else, all about me. Well, there's a third thing at stake. The community is at stake. The community is at stake, all right? Now, there's this incredible scholar, Bruce Waltke. He's one of the world's premier Hebrew scholars, Old Testament scholars. And uh, he writes these words. You'll, you'll see them again there in front of you. Uh, on the screen, he, he says this, he says, the need to rebuild the temple is urgent because temples in their world are the center for administrating the political, economic, judicial, social, and religious life of the nation. It's the center of things that brings the people together. And so whether it is economics all the way to education, the temple becomes the nerve center around which the whole community gathers to grow together. But if all they're doing is focusing on their little homes and their little neighborhoods and the things on their street, and they're not giving attention to what draws them in as one united community, then the community suffers. And by not building the temple, they're saying, listen to me, they're saying the community doesn't matter. And in so many ways, then, they're like a whole lot of us that live in the suburbs all across North America. And you know, where I'm, you know what I'm about to say, right? We pull into our driveways, and what do we do? 
We press our garage door remote and the door opens and we drive in. And as we're turning our car off, we press the garage door remote again and the door goes down. And we never see our neighbors. Community doesn't really matter that much to us, maybe. And that is an analogy for how the people are thinking there in Jerusalem. We're just going to do our own thing and we're not going to worry about the people around us which is such a grievous thing to our Lord. You know why? If we go back to even Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter in the Bible, we figure out right away that God himself is the personification of community. And later we discern Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, one God, three persons, one community, multiple people. It's incredible. That's how much he cares about community. And the temple is supposed to be that which is like this this uh, magnet that just pulls everybody to it. But if it's not built, they can't go, and therefore the community suffers. And there's a fourth thing at stake, and it is this. Their witness for God is at stake. The watching world is paying attention to what those people do with that temple. And if they do nothing with that temple, then the watching world says this, eh, Their God isn't that big of a deal, apparently. Their God doesn't matter. When I got out of that car, you know, the the Reliant K station wagon, uh, and uh, I'm walking in. By the way, it had that brown kind of wood green panel. I mean, this was was an incredible looking car, right? Velour seats. I mean, I was so proud of those velour seats. It was great. Uh, When I got out of that car, and I start walking in, and that guy's yelling, hey, and he's laying on his horn, and I'm ignoring him because I get to be first, and the community and that guy can be second. You know what else I said? Well, I didn't say it, but you know what else I conveyed? God is second. You may say, well, how did you do that? On the back of that station wagon was a great big sticker, Our God Reigns. And then there was a little fish because that was the cool thing back in the 80s. For all of us Christians to be good witnesses for Jesus. I wasn't being a good witness, I was being a jerk. But I was sure happy for folks to identify me as a Christian whose God reigns. And I'm sure he's looking at my station wagon, watching me go in, going, yeah, I bet your God reigns in your life. And that's really the challenge for you and me. These are the things that are at stake for the people of Israel by leaving the temple unattended. And these are the things that are at stake. Listen to me. These are the things that are at stake when we leave Our temple, the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, when we diminish it, when the purposes of God don't seem that important to us, when we're far more concerned about our own concerns and our own comforts than we are His glory and our holiness and the community as a whole and our witness to a watching world, we're basically saying He doesn't matter that much despite all the trappings despite our big Bibles and the fact that we head to church on Sunday before going to Sunshine Factory. And so the question isn't about brick and mortar. Why do you care about your paneled 
houses, when my place is falling apart, it's so much bigger than brick and mortar, friends. It's about your priorities and mine. And am I willing for him to be first or for me to be first? And what does that really mean for a world that's paying attention? Do they see us far more concerned about our politics than the glory of God? Do they see us far more concerned about our our cultural posturing than the glory of God? Do they see us far more concerned about our economic well-being than the glory of God? Now, these are the things we need to wrestle with, right? Ah, he is worthy. Do you believe that? Jesus is worthy, this one who was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, betrayed by a friend, arrested by the authorities, tried in a kangaroo court of spiritual uptights, tortured, crucified, nailed to a cross on which he died so that your sins can be forgiven and mine can be forgiven. And then three days later, he rose from the dead, triumphant, conquering it. And he steps out into the bright, sunny sunshine of Jerusalem on that Sunday morning alive. It's remarkable. He's worthy. The ultimate temple, Jesus, resurrected and alive. Glory for sure. Holiness on our part, you betcha we ought to be set apart for that, for him. A witness to a watching world, absolutely, he's risen from the dead. He ascends into the heavenly places. He intercedes for the saints at the right hand of his Father. And one day, he's going to return in triumphant glory. And the question at that point will be, back to the question here. Well, it's not really time yet. Is that what our posture is going to be? Or are we going to be found, oh, come Lord Jesus ready three words for you and me very simple here word number one gratitude how do I fight being number one in my own life gratitude he died and bled bled and died and rose from the dead for me So that sin and death and the devil and my bent to have to have it my way no longer has the final say. And from that flows incredible gratitude. Oh, Lord, thank you for saving a wretch like me. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Oh, thank you, oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you have done. What he has done what he has done. Oh. Second word. Motivates. Motivates. This is an action word. A few weeks ago we talked about being stuck between the rock and the hard place, between Pharaoh's armies and the sea. And we have all the knowledge. We have even the faith. The question is, are we going to just step out and act on it? And we know the temple needs to be honored because the glory of God is worth it. The temple, which is the purposes, the the body of Christ, our own lives as redeemed sinners. We know we need to give 
prominence to these things and not be so worried about all of our little agenda over here. We know we need to make him first. The question is, are we going to step out and just do it? Haggai chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. On the heels of all this, we read these words. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills, bring wood, and build that house. That is to say, the temple, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. In other words, go and act and do. Don't just sit around. Get going. And the third word, mission. Gratitude motivates mission. You see it right there. And what is the mission? To honor him as number one in every area of our human existence. With every breath we take, everything we say, how we live our lives publicly, how we live our lives privately. That's holiness, by the way. If we want to build the temple today, it's not bricks and mortar. It's declaring his glory to a watching world, telling his story to a needy and desperate world. It is living out his purposes before a people desperate to see something tangible and majestic and mysterious, something transformative. It is to, as John says, the Baptist, John the Baptist, he must increase, I must decrease. Can we just say that together? He must increase, I must decrease. Right. I need to not be number one. He's number one. And therefore, he deserves all the attention. And his agenda reigns supreme. Right? Overall. And we need to remember this. Now, this is why we celebrate the Lord's table. It's to remember that his agenda reigns supreme. He is over all things. For those of you not familiar, hear these words. For those of you familiar, hear them anew so as to not take them for granted. See, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, I referenced it a moment ago, he and his disciples were in a dining room celebrating the great Passover feast, a ritual that recalled centuries earlier when God liberated his people from their slavery in the land of Egypt. It's a very structured meal. At one point in the meal, they come to what's called the unity loaf. This is where the participants remind themselves that they are united together as sisters and brothers under the banner of the Most High God. They break bread together and eat it together to celebrate that. But when they broke that bread that night, Jesus said something they weren't expecting. They were expecting some statement about their unity. But Jesus went further. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat of it in remembrance of me. What a strange statement. What they didn't know, but our Lord knew, was in a matter of hours, his body would be broken on that cross. 
And it is uncanny to me that the sinless, holy Jesus became broken so us wicked sinners could be made whole. That was his purpose. Later in the meal, he takes a goblet of wine and he passes it amongst his disciples and he says to them, this is the new covenant in my blood. Drink of it as often as you will in remembrance of me. It's a strange thing to say for, for what they were to do with that cup was remember when years ago, God had the people slaughter these lambs and take the blood of the lambs and put it on the doorposts and thresholds of their homes. So when God moves through the land of Egypt to smite the Egyptians for their brutality, he would see the blood covering these homes and he would pass over those homes covered with the blood. And what Jesus is saying is, yeah, I know that reminds you of the blood that was shed at that time, but I've got a better blood, an eternal, an eternal gift for you. I am the ultimate lamb of God. My blood covers all sins, not for just a short period of time, but forevermore, friends, forevermore. Amen. There's no more precious commodity in all of time and space than the blood of Jesus. So let us partake of these. Confess your sin. Thank him for his grace to you, for his work on the cross and at the tomb. And let us honor him with gratitude for his goodness to us, for all he's done, for what he's done.